the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And we've got a cheese plate (laughs) and a guest today. (laughs) And we have Jared Monaco over here fixing every sound issue that we have. And we really kind of successfully unsure. Yell at him if it's bad. <laughs> yeah. You guys uh, control him on Instagram if it's bad. Yeah. Um, Billy, what's our holiday today? Happy Balloon Ascension Day. Now, we could talk, because it's Balloon Ascension Day, we could talk about okay, the famous... Quick. When you say Balloon Ascension, I keep hearing extension, <laughs> and I'm like, that must be like a new thing. No, it's, it's like not. A- it's that's like not a, a Pilates it's like a thing. New it's not a balloon extension in your hair. Yeah, that's the thing. Right, like the tinsel okay. and yeah. like how yeah, they do that stuff. But yeah. no, no. Do you remember the famous balloon boy hoax of 2009? We could talk about that. How I could I forget? That. Yes, in October 15th, uh, 2009, it was a homemade helium-filled gas balloon that looked like a flying saucer was released into the air above Fort Collins, Colorado, and then the parents said, "Wait a minute, our child is in there." He's trapped, and then every this became a national story. This was like the o, the OJ chase of in a sense balloons. Of, of balloons of, of balloons and children. And it turned out that the kid whose name was Falcon, great name, sick name. I'm putting that in my name bank. It's not bad for future kids. Yes, uh, he was in the attic the whole time. And it turns out that suspicions of sort of this hoax arose, and then Wolf Blitzer. Uh, Asked him, I believe, uh, in an interview why he was hiding. And Falcon said to his father, you guys said that um, we did this for the show. Mm. So reality TV bites again. Mm. The parents were actually, and this is a crime, the parents were sentenced. Uh, the dad got 90 days in jail and was ordered to pay $36,000 in restitution. The mom got 20 days in weekend jail. What the hell is weekend jail? Go you just go weekend. on weekend. Really? Like two years. I'd rather so go to weekday jail. Your, you can keep your job. Oh. And stuff like that. If you have kids, they do it a lot. If like both parents, this is exactly what happens when both parents, yeah, w- the family would have nobody. What dickhead parents? They're using their child as a pawn. There's a lot for some viral moment. To this day, he says it wasn't a hoax. It's also National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. But more importantly, especially considering what we're talking about today, it's National Apricot Day. Ooh, that's no, a good one. It's Happy National Play God Day. And we've covered many people on the first degree, from Luca Bagnata to Jim Jones, who have done just that. But today we have a man who went above and beyond. And he looks like God. And he looks like Jason Momoa, only grayer. Mm -hmm. And he could kill a man with a karate chop. He could. We're going to learn about that today. Should we jump right in? We should jump in. So we're going to discuss a topic today that is truly one of our slash Jack's favorites here on The First Degree. And it is a phenomenon of group human behavior. We're, of course, talking about cults. So Jim Baker, or Father Yod, was an alleged reformed bank robber and judo chopping killer who fronted a cult psych band, served salads to the stars, took 14 wives, and eventually threw himself from a cliff in a hang glider. You may know a little bit, or you think you know a little bit about this elusive cult after seeing the Source Family documentary. Maybe you saw that. But some former members we have talked to in researching this episode have complained that the depiction of the cult's practices in the documentary and the subsequent media 
is not entirely accurate. If you guys have seen the documentary, if you haven't, it's really good. It used to be on Netflix. I don't know where you can see it now. I think it's like... And it was on Amazon, and it yeah. probably still is. Yeah, or Prime. YouTube, whatever. It's a really good documentary. I watched it a few years ago. Um, it kind of depicts the Source family as being this hippy-dippy, free love. Everybody's wearing like these white flowy dresses, eating vegan food, you know, doing kundalini yoga, that whole thing. But the more that we researched the Source family, the more that we learned that the documentary excluded a lot of the darkest parts about the cult because the story is full of control, sex, underage sexual assault, and murder, or at least justifiable homicide. So we're going to dig into all this stuff with you today with the help from a former member who is amazing. His name is Jim Tratner, and back in his Source family days, his name was Magus the Aquarian. Or was it Magus? I think it was right, Magus. 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 Is Magus. Well, you know, I can't. Well, here anything. he'll introduce himself shortly. But also, on the heels of what you said about justifiable homicide, there's also most certainly negligent homicide. Yeah. That occurred throughout the years uh, in the span of when this cult was active. This is one of the rare occasions where we were able to interview Jim in person, the yeah. three of us, which is so rare because we're all so busy. A lot of them are driven by phone, and we had the best experience with him. We really he was, did. He was a delight. So the way that we got Jim on our podcast is his daughter. I think was a Lady Gang fan, so she was a fan of my other podcast, and she was like, my dad was in the Source family. Yeah. And blew my mind, because it was in the beginning of when we first started our podcast, so it was right. such a cool connection it to was. such a huge cult. And, oh my gosh, so this is actually really cool, too. After he was done, he pulled me aside. He's like, Alexis, I went to boarding school with your grandmother. And I was like, what? They were two of like 30 kids in this really tiny boarding school. His family, uh, they lived in Beverly Hills. They lived next door to my grandpa, Art. So he was friends with my grandma. And then afterwards, I hooked them up on Facebook and now they're like friends. So weird. And I was like, you're doing God's work. Doing God's work. hundred <laughs> percent. Let's dig in to the Source family, shall we? So the Source family was a spiritual collective that consisted of about 140 members, most of them under 30 years old, and most of them were pretty hot. Not going to lie. Watch right. the documentary. You'll agree. They ate raw food and homeschooled their homeborn children, and they dressed in beautiful robes, and they didn't believe in Western medicine. And more interesting than the cult itself is the man who started it and the violent encounters he enc- he experienced before he became a beloved white robe wearing and white rolls Royce driving cult leader. Why do all cult leaders drive Rolls Royces? They they love them, and we will get into it. So we are guy we are going to introduce you guys to Jim now. So here he is. I'm Jim. So I was Magus the Aquarian in the Source, and uh, I was originally what was called the elder brother. That meant that essentially I was the parent heir to the source if uh, Jim died or left or, or something like that. And I was also one of the oldest people in the family. I joined the family in um, early 1972. It had been around for um, a couple of years, probably in, a, in about late 69 or early 70. I was living in an ashram in Santa Cruz, and my friend Bo and I drove to Los Angeles uh, eventually, we were going to South America, but we stopped in Los Angeles, which was where I grew up. And there was a place that was supposed to be really a happening place called the Source Restaurant. And there were a bunch of young people there, and they gathered around us and were interested that we looked like interesting people to them because we were yogi-oriented people. And so they said, oh, you have to meet Father. So they took us up to their home up in the Los Feliz district, and it was this huge mansion, and it was like no place I'd ever seen before. There were just all these young, beautiful people 
running around naked. It looked like we were in heaven or something. I mean, that was kind of the setting. It was just perfect. Everything about it seemed beautiful, just fulfilled any kind of romantic idea I had about the spiritual world. We were enchanted at first. And then they said, oh, no, Father's at the restaurant. You've got to, we've got to take you back to the restaurant because he wants to meet you. So that's Jim. We love Jim. And he also told us about his crazy first encounter with Father Yod. He hung out up in this temple a lot and meditated. And I remember I walked up to the room, up a ladder, a, a wooden ladder, and I saw this guy with a long beard and very long hair sitting at this temple that was decorated with all kinds of religious uh, deities and things like that. I went up to him and he was just sitting there and his eyes were kind of rolled up in his head and he was obviously in some kind of a trance or meditating or something. I didn't know what he was doing and I didn't know exactly what to do. So I remembered when you're in front of a guru, you're supposed to kiss their feet. His feet were bare and his legs were in a lotus pose and um, I kissed his toes on both feet and he looked down at me and he said, far out. And I looked up at him and this is the truth. He like bored into my brain with his eyes. He had very beautiful, large blue eyes. And he said, you are my son and I am your father. And I was just like, all right. And um, there were beautiful women there. And I was single at the time. I still had a wife that I left at the ashram. I, mean, I was like, oh, my God, we found it. We're here. We've arrived. This is the Holy Grail. I mean, tell me what to do next. We integrated into the uh, community there. I worked at the restaurant. I was more mature than, than most of them. I mean, I had graduated from graduate school, and I had been a practicing psychologist. Yeah, I went to Harvard, and I went to Northwestern. And I was practicing for a while here in L.A. on Sunset and Vine at a place called the Los Angeles Psychosocial Center. I was a shrink. Who exactly is Jim Baker? So this was started by a man with possibly the most generic legal name on the planet other than Jim Smith. But the man with the simple name had a sketchy and checkered past that very few knew the details of. But here's what we know. James Edward Baker, he was born on the 4th of July in 1922, lived through some of America's most storied periods in the 20th century. He was from an unpretentious Cincinnati suburb, and he grew into a large man in size and ambition. And he kind of embodies the myriad of American dreams in that he was a World War II Marine who, according to legend, shot down nine Japanese planes while his battleship was under kamikaze attack. He was an expert in jiu-jitsu. He was a suspected bank robber and an accused murderer. So after stints as a Hollywood stuntman and bodybuilder, he actually came out here to be a Hollywood stuntman, he turned his obsession with an organic vegetarian diet into a series of restaurant businesses. And allegedly, the capital for this visionary business came from robbing banks Again, myths and legends, but if he robbed banks to fund his vegetarian restaurant, that's also pretty badass. Yeah, no, it is. He was the owner of the Aware Inn, which was possibly America's first organic food restaurant. It was on Sunset Boulevard in the 50s and 60s, followed by the Discovery Inn in Topanga and the Old World Restaurant before opening the Source uh, Restaurant, which was also on Sunset. But this guy wasn't all good vibes, though. The future guru had a family that he ditched before moving to L.A. when he convinced himself and tried to convince them that he was going to make it as this stunt man. He's that quintessential 
personality of people that we've talked about in many episodes that it's like you're coming to Hollywood to make it mm-hmm. whether it be in the 1970s because you want to be a stuntman or anybody in the last like decade that we've talked about thinking they're going to make it as an actor it's the same 100%. bullshit 100% so while you're listening to this podcast why don't you just google Father Yod take a look and it's Y-O-D Father Yod yes he is huge he has this long white wavy hair huge beard he's in just a family abandoner <laughs> he's also there's more there's he's more. also taken lives so i have to tell you i had to do some serious digging into newspaper archives to find any evidence of this murder because it's all rumored but i did and he did get into a fight there was an article that was published in the 1950s that detailed a dispute between jim baker slash father yod and his neighbor and this was in front of baker's home in topanga canyon which which for those of you who aren't from L.A., it's an area outside of L.A. near Malibu, sort of, in the Santa Monica Mountains. The hills, yeah. So he got into a fight with his neighbor, and he apparently karate chopped him in the neck, as one does. <laughs> it's so amazing. Straight up karate chopped him. I'm sure he used he learned that jujitsu in his World War II situation. And the police did get involved, but Jim Baker was never charged. They did agree with him that it was likely in self-defense. And I would say maybe that's believable, but something that would happen a decade later really calls this story into question because once is a fluke. The second killing Jim Baker would be involved in took place in 1963 at his apartment above his aware in restaurant. So inside the apartment, Jim Baker was with a woman named Jane Ingram. And at some point, James irate husband stormed into the apartment and confronted them. Who knows what was happening? I don't know. But like we said, Jim was a black belt in judo. So he disabled his attacker, then used the guy's gun to kill him, making that the second time that he killed a man in a dispute that seemed to be self-defense, but who freaking knows? Right. And so he said, too, that the two of them were just platonic, which I do not believe. Yeah. And there's all this uh, information. I mean, I there are a ton of articles. This you can find if you have a newspapers.com account. You can't just Google it. But there was a lot going on with this relationship. Jane and Gruton's husband had gotten in a high-speed chase with them and followed them down the PCH and had gotten in a confrontation. How can this be in self-defense when he did the judo chop and shot him in the head? A judo chop could have disabled him, but then why'd you shoot him in the head? That yeah. doesn't sound... That's not self-defense. So this one did go to court and he ended up pleading to like a manslaughter Mm -hmm. and got like seven months, but it went away. This is the thing. This is what sets him aside and apart from all of the other cult leaders. He was independently wealthy. Yeah. All this stuff we're talking about that's very lore, like the bank robberies, the murders. We asked Jim if he knew anything about this violent history. I didn't really know about that going in the door at all. I knew nothing about him. I knew nothing about him. But, yeah, that kind of got around pretty quickly. I never thought that was, like, a great thing to champion about a a person. Although different people get fascinated with different things. He was unquestionably strong, and he liked to show off, and he liked to do these push-ups on his fingertips and Mm -hmm. show people his strength and stuff. I mean, he was very vain, especially after I really got to study him a little bit and hang out. Let's talk about how Jim Baker slash Father Yod becomes a restaurateur. So he opens the Aware Inn on the Sunset Strip, which is one of the first natural food restaurants in the U.S. And then he opens the Source Restaurant, which is now Cabo Cantina on the Sunset Strip. And if you look at old pictures of the interior or exterior and then go to Cabo Cantina, it, it hasn't really changed that much. It looks it pretty hasn't. the same. Yeah. They have the same fireplace inside. So, and this was one of the first natural food restaurants in the U.S. that offered organic vegetarian food. And there wasn't places that were like this at the time. And it was served by a collective 
of, of these young hippies that were dressed in these white robes. And they were all really hot, too. So, mm-hmm. like, imagine going to a place where your servers are basically, like, hippie models. And they're like angels yeah. in their white robes. They do look like angels serving you your food. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, the cleanest food that exists in the United States. Right. And the strip was happening at this time. So all the youth and the counterculture people flocked every night to the strip, so much so that, the, that a curfew was put in place. And the song, For What It's Worth, by Buffalo Springfield was actually, they had riots about the curfew and they wrote the song based on those riots. The Doors played the London Fog, the Roxy, the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Birds Love, Led Zeppelin, the Hyatt House, which is called the Riot House, where Led Zeppelin raced motorcycles through the, the, the hallway. This was the place to be mm-hmm. on the West Coast. I mean, you talk about Haight-Ashbury, but when you go to Haight-Ashbury, there wasn't, like, there was stuff there. A little more gritty. Yeah, but and this was like... there wasn't like places to be. Yeah, exactly. The there was, yeah. Where, yeah. It was like Haight-Ashbury, okay, this is where we go because the park is right there and there was a couple stores and this is this but sunset strip there was so many different places to go to it was happening and this was the place to go so people went to this but john lennon and yoko ono were regulars marlon brando warren Beatty, and the restaurant even featured in woody allen's classic annie hall where he mockingly orders alfalfa sprouts and mashed yeast which was a line that was then uttered by emilio estevez to andy mcdowell in saint Elmo's fire which speaking of fires it crashed and burned if anybody remembers that movie the, the line did <laughs> yeah. not work on him. No, no idea. Too young. Too young. Way over my head. Really? You guys never seen St. Elmo's Fire? No. Oh, man. All right. Well, at, at its peak, the source reportedly took in $300,000 a month. It's a lot. Which is insane. I want to know how much that is now. $10,000 in 1970 is equivalent in purchasing power to $61,000 in, oh. in 2016. So, so times that by six. 61,000 um, no, per day. So it was like $1.8 million, million a month. A month. Mm-hmm. I was told there would be no math. All right. So at some point after the success of his restaurants, Jim Baker becomes Father Yod. And remember, Jim Baker's original plan was to move to L.A. in the late 60s to pursue his stuntman work. But he was soon seduced by the Eastern mysticism dripping through the streets at the time. He slowly transformed into Father Yod, a spiritual leader who exposed the virtues of healthy eating, yoga, meditation, and a number of other practices that were reminiscent at the time, but are now commonly accepted. Like if somebody was doing that now, you'd be like, Number five hundred billion person like in cliche. Venice. Yeah, like boring, like boring hipster dude. The cult actually was funded by the success of the restaurant, which we talked about. Yeah, which we already talked about. So, I mean, they were rolling. They in were the killing dough. it. They were killing it. So, we asked Jim for general analysis of this cult leader who he came to know so well. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I do think it's probably true that narcissism would be, extreme narcissism would be common. I mean, if somebody actually thinks of themselves as the ultimate deity of the entire planet, that's a kind of narcissist. Yeah, I also think there's a kind of um, psychopathic quality to it. I think in a certain way, he was a scammer. I mean, if, if any of that is true or remotely true about robbing banks and stuff like that, I think what happened a lot is these all of these gurus started to come over here, but it's so hard to say what causes things as part of the zeitgeist of that time period. And his story, I think, is is a reasonable one. I mean, he was this kind of guy that was Really, I think kind of a cruder sort of person, but he was he made a bunch of money in the restaurant business and he wanted to kind of go straight and he went and started studying with this guru, Yogi Bhajan, and uh, learned some yoga and stuff. And then I think what happened is a lot of these people saw that these gurus were coming here from India and they were making a lot of money. I mean, there was a kind of greedy thing going on with these people. 
It was like the Americans were nice and ripe for what they were selling. I mean, this is my more cynical side about it, but the business of religion is an old business. (laughs) There's been a lot of money made under the name of God and um, God-like people. It seems pretty obvious that history kind of determines the way a lot of us behave in our particular moment that we're around. And so I just think it was asking or aching for somebody like him to appear And he was just the perfect guy from Central Casting. He looked the part. He was perfect. The Source Restaurant was the perfect recruiting tool for the Source family cult. And its ranks quickly swelled with the young, impressionable people looking for a sense of purpose and community who kind of flocked to L.A. from all over the country. You know, what's funny. The restaurant regulars had no idea. But this place really was ground zero for Father Yod's collective of religious followers who lived these interesting communal style lives in a house in the Hollywood Hills, which was walking distance to the restaurant. And this place was called the Mother House. So Father Yod, he cruised around town in a $34,000 Rolls Royce. He was keen on, quote, nice things for the, quote, life trip and believe that money was, quote, magical green energy that will produce anything for you instantly. Well, that's true. That That is is true. true. Nailed it. Nailed it. Members took on the surname Aquarian. And this was, after all, this was the dawn of the age of Aquarius, like the song says. So they all made legal name changes. The first name is one that Father Yod would choose for you. The middle name was always the. Or the. Or the. And the surname was Aquarian. So, Jack, you would be... What did I say I was? Ambi and the Aquarian? Mm-hmm. And I had two. <laughs> but Jack really was is behind one of them. <laughs> one is uh, Aperol the Aquarian. Which we could share. Which is a mutual... It's mutual love. And the other one is Anxiety of the Aquarian. We're really going for the yeah. A alliteration, though. Yeah, you're doing a lot of alliteration right there. Well, I only did Ambien because... Like, I would have... Yeah. Anxiety. Well, what would you... Okay, what would you... Let's, I have no idea what... what you I would, would oh. be Disney the Aquarian. <laughs> You would be like like apathy, the Aquarian. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very apathetic. I know. (laughs) Anxiety, the Aquarian, spot on for me. Yeah, that's pretty good. So during the time that Jim Baker transformed into Father Yod, it was the height of the sort of cult movement in the United States. And the Source family was at its height when the Manson murders occurred. So in LA, there was a lot of hostility towards anyone who was associated with a cult, especially these guys walking around in white robes. They weren't exactly subtle. I'm sure people were kind of scared of them and weary even though at this time from the outside they were very um, harmless. People fear what they don't understand. Right. So we asked Jim his thoughts on whether he considered the source a cult at that time and how things were when the Manson murders occurred. You know, cult is a really loaded word. I think in many ways it fit, in hindsight, it fit the definition of cults. And I've looked into cults and looked into the damage that I think that they may have done to some people. Going in the door, I didn't think about it as a cult. I thought about it as a spiritual community. But I didn't know really what I was getting into. But I didn't feel like I had much to lose. And I pretty much retained my my sense of autonomy. I didn't feel like I went uh, completely overboard into it. And I don't feel like I got brainwashed or the kinds of things that people claim happen to people. So I think it depends on the kind of person you are, whether you're apt to do that or not. But it certainly fit the definition of a cult. It had a, you know, a powerful leader that um, basically asked 
all of the disciples or members or whatever you call them to surrender their autonomy, their belongings, everything to him, and then to follow, you know, a pretty strict set of guidelines of behavior. It was pretty weird. I do think that we were mistaken for (laughs) Manson-like people. And certainly at this time that I'm describing this early stage there, I mean, this was like, you know, about love, peace, goodness. And there was nothing that seemed dark whatsoever about this thing. But because of how we looked and how we acted and how we dressed, I think we were mistaken for something evil in certain people's eyes. In other people's eyes, people were just really curious. Who are these people? So Father Yod gets married to a beautiful 19-year-old go-go dancer named Robin. And when they started uh, their relationship... Surprise, surprise, by the way. Yeah, it was a monogamous relationship. There was an age difference. She was 19. He was 47 at this time. Quite a difference. Quite, quite. But let's talk about what life was like in the cult. So they all lived, and I use the term cult loosely. I was trained not to use the term cult. So uh, oh. I think at this point, at this point, we're very much we just a bunch of people. We get a religious studies major. <laughs> They're just, this is just people just, yeah, new, new, new religious movements is what this is. All right, right. They all lived in a shared house together. They were very focused on clean eating. Drugs weren't permitted, except for the sacred herb or herb. Which is weird, okay, right? Okay, it's not herb. <laughs> Do you call it Barcelona? Do you spell favorite with a U? <laughs> I do, actually, sometimes I, I, I have it autocorrected. Are you British? I'm, yes. No. No, 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 because I'm, yeah, I'm such a big Anglophile. So. Remember that Hattie was wearing You're from while, Phoenix. Though? I like wore it hat. once. <laughs> you put paper boy hat? The British hat. I the thought stupid... a five-year-old from the 1920s should have worn it. <laughs> Man, <laughs> small. Hello. That's all right. And, uh, which we're going to have Jim tell you about in a minute, this whole sacred... Herb. <laughs> uh, Jim also didn't believe or allow any Western medicine for any member. So this is where this is where we start getting into the mm-hmm. cult-like territory. Okay. And one more interesting characteristic of this group is that they had unlimited money. And this is one of the strange things that you find about this group is that you always see all these groups that it's usually a guy that doesn't have much money. And what they do is he goes to all the people, sucks their life yep. saving, sucks everything, consistently asks them for more and more money. This guy didn't, didn't need to do that. He was independently wealthy. And this restaurant was huge. It was a huge success. Most of the bad, quote unquote, cults, they bleed their members dry. But this one had a business. This one had a guy that was successful it really is different but he was probably even better at sucking people in because yeah. the risk was they're like huh the risk was low and then he can really like latch into them and also they get addicted to the benefits of being in his cult and we're gonna hear about some of those right now from jim because he talked about not only the sacred hub they also talked about what they did with this money it was not a drug-fueled group But what we did is every morning we had one eight-second toke of the sacred herb. And that was our morning ritual. And we weren't doing anything else. But we do this toke. Then we do these breathing exercises, these breath of fire inhalations and exhalations really quick. You get really high from that. And then we'd sit there and he would just riff. He would just talk. It was kind of a cross between Lenny Bruce and and a kind of stereotype guru guy. And he was funny and he was fun. And he loved having all of our attention and the women would giggle and oh father you know you're so wonderful and it so it was uh it was a lot of fun we had a lot of music uh that was another thing that was really great is we had a band and i was one of the musicians in the band and i i loved that we had seemed like unlimited money to buy equipment with and synthesizers and guitars and and it was fabulous (laughs) 
second puff of weed, I would die. No, I know. I would die. Mm-hmm. And then you have to do these like weird kundalini breathing exercises. Oh, they're probably about to literally die of suffocation, and that's why they felt high. They I were know. like almost to the light. <laughs> almost there. And then you're watching this guy, just this hot god riff at you looking you're like, guy. Yeah. Be funny and shit. It's probably like the best moment of your life because you so think you're fun. almost dead. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me just t- say this one thing right now. The weed back then, and certainly the weed when I was a kid, it was probably terrifying. N- it was not as good as it is now. You guys have been spoiled. You guys think all weed weed is like this weed oh i can't no. even, this I weed s- is freaking crazy the stuff that we have right now i would say uh, probably a hundred times better well than that's the weed what that i'm saying i can only smoke a specific weed pen that i know is not going to freak me out i can't imagine taking some random mysterious actual weed Ooh. No, I literally can't smoke weed. It gives me panic attacks. I only can do Sunday scaries. That's an unpaid advertisement, by the way. <laughs> I'd also be like, can I do my like little eight second thing in the night so I can go to bed totally. instead of doing it in the morning? Totally. They get all amped up. No. No, not for me. All right. So not only would they do the eight second morning toke, they would play music. And like some other notorious cult leaders, Father Yod harbored secret dreams about one day being this famous musician. Oh, he succeeded. But... <laughs> Yeah. He was good at it, A. I see why people thought he was God. He did everything. Stuntman, bodybuilder. He was just like one of those people that was just good too at damn everything. good at everything. Everything. Hot, like... Push-ups on your fingertips? That's f***ing impossible. 6'5", the perfect height. Beard. Like, hot. But, Charisma? I mean, the great thing is, is that Hot. he can afford all the equipment, too. In 1973, Father Yod formed Yahoo! 13, which is a psychedelic <laughs> rock band <laughs> that played local high schools and other establishments. You remember them on the Warp Tour, right? Yahoo! No? Okay. Oh, yeah. Saw them every day. You do, You ran their merch. In uh, the parking lot. You're, 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 right. you're, you're, <laughs> they wore Jack's wristbands. Yep. <laughs> Bracelets. It said Father Yeah. So music was central to the family lifestyle. The members formed this house band, and they were selling these albums uh, out of the restaurant. They recorded nine of these albums. And there's actually several mu- major musical groups who cite Yahoo 13 is their inspiration. <laughs> and the albums themselves are, are collector's albums. You can actually check them out on eBay. You can actually still buy them on eBay, and which is more than we can say about Charles Manson and Jim Jones. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. You guys remember how Father Yoda's married to the 19-year-old go-go dancer named Robin. So she eventually gets kind of demoted as the wife. As Father Yod settled more and more into his role as a cult leader, he started to believe he had a mission to populate the world, as somehow they all do. What did Robin call him? Robin called Father Yod a dirty old man on a lust trip. Because well, he was having sex with underage girls. And honestly, pretty accurate. Right. So I agree with you, Robin. So this ended up... this quote ended up getting her demoted from house mother and replaced by the younger Makushla. At 20 years old, Robin was already aging out of Father Yod's age preference, which is really disgusting. Yeah. So she was devastated. She already had a child with Father Yod. And instead, Father Yod ended up marrying, quote, 13 wives from the family, many of whom were underage. He would go on to have three children by three different women. And we asked Jim what his relationship was like. I mean, because obviously, Jim, his relationships are changing as he's getting more and more power and like the narcissism is getting exacerbated. So we were curious when we were talking to him about like what his relationship was like with Father Yod, given that he was Harvard educated, he was old. He was kind of the only peer figure in the cult at the time. So we were curious about if there were any conflicts. 
in another sense, I think he felt almost, he related to me almost like a peer. For a while, appeared to really like me a lot and really want to get closer with me. And he would always talk about, you know, his genius son. And then he called me a head tripper. He said, oh, Magus is always a head tripper. He's always thinking about things and tripping on things. And I thought, yeah. My parents came to visit once, and my parents were really straight. They, li- they lived in Beverly Hills, and I grew up in Beverly Hills. My dad was a businessman, ran a big company. It's called K Jewelers. The first rule was that my parents had to call me Magus. That was a big stretch. And so he told me that when your parents come, I want you to call your dad's son. And I did. Yeah, our parents, they were known as life people. And so life people were sort of very much second class. We were really the only ones that were enlightened. There was really that kind of brainwashing going on. Again, I was lucky because it just didn't happen for me. It's interesting. I know like the obvious thing seems like, oh, it's control. Like I'm going to be more important than your parents. But I think it's also a mechanism. He knows it's going to piss the parents off and the parents are going to be creeped out and weirded out. And then it just also makes them more estranged from their family. No, it, it sets up an adversarial relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and it plays because he's, so- he, he's not only playing the, the son against the parents. He's doing that to play the parents against the son, which is rare, too, because a lot of times you completely cut the child off or you cut the spouse off from from their partner. Mm-hmm. So they don't get to see that. But he saw them. OK, they're going to meet. I want you to do this. Yeah, yeah. you're going to be it. condescending to them and like call me father in front of your parents and call him son. And it just sets up this really. Yeah, it's like I mean, role it's reversal, pre- replacement. There's a lot going on. I mean, and the, the, you know, spawn offspring uh, parent relationship is so primal and primitive that it's probably like innately really things up mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think even people really understand. But he did. I mean, he's a really smart cult leader. <laughs> He's a really smart call leader. He didn't need to siphon people's money. He just liked the control. Yeah. And the attention. Exactly. And the sex. He just wants more, 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 more attention, more sex, more everything. Whereas like, and it's just like, that's, it's just narcissism at its finest. So much so that he outgrows the first house that they're in and they have to move from the mother house to the father house in Los Feliz. Well, they outgrow it because they're living in like a couple rooms and they've got like 20 people to room. When, when we say he outgrew it, it's not just his ego. It's like, it was squalor living, you know? And they're rich. Right. So it's like, get a bigger house. Exactly. It's interesting. For this show, we were entertaining, integrating a bunch of interviews, and we did speak to a former member named Laura, and she declined to participate because she just didn't think she was a great speaker for whatever reason. But she did encourage us to use all the information about her experience in the cult from her blog. And in terms of the really horrible things that were going on, the stuff in her blog is a really incredible example of these things. And she detailed them really well. So we're going to get into some of those now. So they move into this Georgian style mansion in Los Feliz that was previously owned by the newspaper tycoon family, the Chandlers, who owned the L.A. Times. He delves into these extreme occult beliefs of Aleister Crowley and his uh, sort of ritualized sexual madness. So the more that the leader became convinced that that would this was the way that he was going to achieve this ultimate consciousness so (laughs) according to laura he decided that all the women in his family should be impregnated and produce what he believed would be a new race of aquarian children yet he never once asked what any of us this is her saying this not me what any of us wanted he just expected everyone to obey his directives along with instructing the women on what their roles or duties were to be which was to be of service to the men and we see this a 
a lot in cults. At some point, the guy comes down and says, I talked to God or I am God. And he told me to have sex with all of your wives. And then everyone's like, all right. Yeah. So Laura also said one of one of the other up things that Jim Baker did was when he decided to impose a sexual ritual called a kadash on the entire group, which was when he was instructing women in the family to perform sexual acts on the men and their sons one after another. So it was like, have sex with this dude, then this dude, then this dude, then this dude, which is not cool. One of the former members wrote that when she became a nursing mother, she also distinctly recalled him referring to her as one of the milk cows of the family, which dude, you. You. Something that became a huge problem to certain cult members, and especially those with children, was the ban on the use of Western medicine. And I read almost every blog post on Laura's blog, and one of the most disturbing blog entries detailed a story of two infants who were born at the father house in Los Angeles. These children, these infants, began to show signs of distress, and it was clear that they desperately needed medical attention. Father Yod saw the prospect of either of them leaving their body, i.e. dying, an acceptable alternative to seeking medical attention. He believed that the souls or spirits of those infants would make the choice whether to remain in their bodies or to leave their bodies, to have their souls or spirits reborn at a future date. So somewhere on the hillside in Los Angeles, near what was the father house, are buried two tiny casualties of Father Yod's source family rules, essentially banning Western medicine. And to add insult to injury, Father Yod even banished one of these mothers to a tent on the grounds where ants would soon envelope the infant on the ground because Father Yod didn't want to be disturbed by the incessant crying of that dying infant, essentially. The other woman whose infant died just languished and suffered misery, and she was clutching and holding this baby until its last breath. Like we said, this wasn't in the documentary. Jim, Magus the Aquarian, had an experience similar. The first time I saw it getting really darker was a personal time, and my first son got sick. And uh, they were doing all their healing things with uh, colors and gels with blue and green and and stuff to heal him and uh, chanting and all of that. And I just was watching him get sicker and sicker. And I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to take him to the doctor. But we had a law, a rule that you didn't use physicians, allopathic physicians ever. And that they they were like evil and their medicine is evil. And also that there's nothing wrong with dying. You just leave the body and then you reincarnate and it's just chill. It's fine. You know, don't worry about it. If that's what is meant to happen, then that will happen. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to abide this. So I took him to the doctor and got him some uh, antibiotics. He had a, um, I think like a strep throat or something like that. And it was an infection that kept getting worse and worse. And his fever was getting higher and higher. He was losing weight and he was sick. He was really sick. That really shook me. And I was like, well, this is really weird. I think it was frowned upon. I think I was more of an outlier. I went against father's teachings. That was where it kind of started. He wanted to keep it so contained within this family. And he just kept drilling into us, you know, that we're like superior people. We're the leaders of the Aquarian age and we're bringing in the Aquarian age and we're going to teach everybody all these Aquarian commandments. And so that was kind of where it started. And then it got into some really weird sex stuff. 
that I thought was, I'll just suffice it to say, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if I, if I really want to get into this too far, but another commandment was to drink women's menstrual blood. I don't need to say too much more about that because to me, that was kind of the like, okay, this is insane now, but it didn't hit everybody that way. In fact, I was really in a minority, at least in terms of being outspoken about it and just saying like, you know, this is up. That to me was just really weird and it just crossed over every line that I could possibly imagine and that was when I began to realize like I got to get out of here. This is one of many things that is dark within yeah. it within this cult. And he tells another story, like everything's rainbows and sunshine, which is how it's recounted historically, but listen to this story. It's crazy. I was scammed out of, I inherited some money from my grandfather when my grandfather died, about $40,000. And it's just a quick aside, but there was this guy who was sort of like the treasurer of the place. And he was this guy named Don Lund, and he was called Magic, Magic the Aquarian. Father asked me to loan Magic this money so he could do something for the source. I can't even remember exactly what it was, but he made off with my money. I was incensed and I, I wound up breaking into Magic's home and finding documents that showed that he was on probation and I told him that I'd send him back to prison because I really wanted my money back. And um, this is a really weird sidetrack, but Magic wound up shooting his gay partner that he lived with and killed him. And um, I did get my money back. That's just an aside. But you were talking about darkness. So it's really dark. As far as the fact that this magic person killed his gay lover, I was reading Laura's blog and Father Yod was homophobic. And she told a story about he was doing a meditation somewhere and trying to like solicit new members. And it was kind of out in the open in nature. And two gay guys came and he like berated them until he, they left. Oh, really? Yes. So this is fascinating because this guy was probably closeted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just this is... He brought this up because he's like, you're talking about darkness in yeah. the cult. I mean, this is all what was brewing right underneath the surface. They say age of Aquarian, but I think he's trying to just have it a very cookie cutter. Everyone in his cult looks the same. Everybody is yeah. exactly how he wants. And I think he just disguises his true intentions with language. I think you might be right. It's completely it different than Jim Jones. Jim Jones was oh, in the yeah. beginning was very much taking everybody and taking yeah. all the downtrodden and, and well, people of different races. And, well, they and, had different MOs because Jim Jones wasn't rich. So he needed to take whoever and then take their money where he, he could, could be, be picky he could curate like his family well also there his cult was a lot smaller right like and didn't like it wasn't like 150 yeah mm-hmm. so it's like he was basically like cherry picking who he wanted to make his like perfect looking cult and honestly he kind of succeeded because when you are watching that documentary and when you look at the source family from the outside that's what it looks like like it looks like this perfect cookie cutter thing well and it's funny um in the beginning of the episode when Jim said he walked in and everyone was beautiful and running around naked and it's just like he knew how to lure people in. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting that Father Yod was like 47 and Jim was in his 30s and he was the oldest person besides Father Yod. Yeah, that's weird. So he also was like controlling younger people and psychos do this shit. That's what Mylon Ross was doing at Whole Foods. Yeah. He wanted to be the mayor of Whole Foods and he would have parties but only invite people under 25 when he was like 40. Yeah. Because you can control them better. Yeah. I mean, Billy's like 50 years older than us so he's a lot... (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm controlling both of you, right? No, but it's like you have more life experience. So you know, like you just know more about life and more about people and more about relationships just innately from living longer on this earth. You know, is Billy tricking us right now? I I think we're tricking him. Yeah. Is this a trick? No. Are you dead inside? I'm a little dead. (laughs) (laughs) No, after uh, he records with us, he goes home and like sobs. He cries for like a week. He gets like a weekly beating from us. No, yeah, no. I just take a shower. Yeah, just rinse it right off you. Pretend like you don't know us. Totally. So there's another Manson connection, which is this is crazy. It's an amazing story. This is like Final Destination crazy shit. Mm -hmm. Legend has it after months of hounding, Robin, who would later become Jim's wife, we discussed her a bunch of times, the 19 year old go-go dancer. And Jim was pursuing her relentlessly. And when she finally consented to go out with him one night, she forfeited her plans to visit her friend Sharon Tate. So Jim and Robin spent that night, August 8th, 1969 together and that evening was the evening that the Manson family murdered everybody at Sharon Tate's house and the next day they read in the newspaper about the fate that Robin had escaped and her devotion to Father Yod was cemented so she decided this must be fate and she married Father Yod making her the first official mother of the source family it's just crazy it gives me a chills you have to think it's fate really right I mean do you guys have a story like this I I mean I have like this my mom was in the Twin Towers the day oh, before shit. at the same time at in September 10th in 2001. That's also like Seth McFarlane was just I know. On that plane. So I mean when you have one of those in your life I mean I think you just get a better understanding of like the cosmic shuffling of the deck like yeah. I always say because it's just I mean how would my life have, I mean I could have turned into like a suicidal drug addict if I didn't have like a mom yeah. in like eighth grade who knows you know it's just it's fascinating and it doesn't surprise me because you guys listening have escaped death without even knowing it the crossover's crazy the fact that it's just such a distinct event that she could have I mean she would have died so she escaped one Manson cult she escaped a cult death and then joined a cult yeah that ruined her life but she probably didn't think it was a cult at the time you never do you know you never do but it ruined her life and it's the same kind of thing that happened with Jim jo- um, yeah. uh, Leo Ryan's daughter yeah. where yeah. it's like she, her dad was killed by Jim Jones and then she joins the Rajneeshis like it's bizarre 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 so there are some versions back to this Robin thing one version is that she spent the night with him but one version is that she attended a yoga class at the source restaurant so we don't know like the, the nitty gritty of right but she basically Basically, like, attests her not being killed by Charles Manson's followers to Father Yod. Yeah. So, therefore, marry the guy and you should be with him. All this shit is going on in Los Angeles. The Mansons had killed people. But at any point, as all cult leaders do, he found it necessary to move his collective away from where it started in Los Angeles. So, in 1974, Father Yod was getting paranoid. We've seen this before. <laughs> A hospital had called the police on the family after they brought in one of their children who was dying of a really easily treatable staph infection. So the heat was really on him, and the underage girl runaways, brides or not, were missed by their families. The police in Los Angeles were getting a flood of complaints, and many of the daughters who were in, like, his harem, their parents were really influential. I mean, even Jim said his dad was running K Jewelers. Father Yod's introduction of the polygamous practices into the family left many, many people, especially the women, kind of reeling. Some of the people left at this point. Others stayed, but harbored an acute disrespect for Father Yod. This change was compounded by the loss of their lease at the Father House, which is the one that was owned by the Chandler family. They didn't want to renew their lease after the murders of La Biancas because the cults were just getting a bad rap, and they were like, you know what, we're too rich 
rich for this. We don't give a shit. We're yeah. not renting the house. And that's the same house. La Bianca's was the same town. It was like a mile away. Also, there are multiple investigations the sheriff's department conducted into teenage runaways being harbored within the cult. So all of this and more precipitated the sale of the source restaurant and the family's move to Kauai with intentions to open an international health spa, schools, farms, and healing centers, none of which would ever happen. You know what? Jonestown hadn't happened yet. Jonestown wouldn't happen for three more years, but it's very similar. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that like a cult leader's instinct is to isolate like with geography. Yeah, because they probably feel people pulling away. Mm -hmm. They probably feel like the outside kind of coming in. It's like that sense of claustrophobia where it's like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Or it's going to implode or explode. And they literally were, everything was closing in because they had 150 people in these three bedrooms. So they sell the restaurant. They go to Hawaii in uh, late 1974. And we asked Jim about Hawaii and he had already left the family, but he knew all about it because he actually was in Maui too. I was in Hawaii. So I stayed in touch with certain people from the family. I wound up moving with um, two wives and three kids, and we went and lived in Maui together for a while uh, as a little real you know, family. I, I actually really distanced myself uh, from almost everybody. In fact, I think from everybody in that group for many, many years. But I know a lot about what happened because being in Hawaii, there's like this thing called they call the Pineapple Express and everybody knows what's going on. There was a lot of, I think, power struggles and things like that. And they had no restaurant anymore. And the Hawaiian uh, locals and everything, it, it became what I guess uh, may, might be commonly known as a cluster. I, I think it got really messed up. And so some people went out and they had to deal drugs and stuff like that because they had no money. And uh, people lived off of uh, welfare. And then some people just spun away completely. There were a lot of problems in Hawaii for the family. The hippies and their spiritual experiments weren't welcome in conservative Hawaii. The police tailed them. No one would hire them. They were being confused for the Manson family. And there were literally bullets flying through their property. Natives who didn't want them there were becoming violent. So Father Yod felt compelled to arm an increasingly paranoid and emotionally unraveling family members. Father told his little birds to fly out of the nest that he had nothing left to teach. He was not God, but a man, a man frustrated by political and possibilities and grievous mistakes. A man who on August 25th, 1975, decided to go hang gliding at the Makapu Cliffs without any lessons in how to hang glide. The locals, for their part, believed that this group would follow in the style of other American cults famous of the times, the Mansons and the People's Temple. Father Yod also believed that the government was coming after him either for the underage marriages or shady tax dealings. So let's talk about the day it happened. Okay. So before leaving that morning to go hang gliding, Father Yod allegedly told his wife, Makushla, that her black dress was appropriate to wear that day and led a credence to the idea that maybe the trip was supposed to be a suicide. But many of the family members went up a 13,000 foot cliff with Father Yod and there is video of him attempting to take off. The man leaps into the air. Father Yod landed on a beach and while the followers reached their guru, they all ran to gather around him. He was still alive but unable to move. And this is all on tape, by the way. Similar. Did you find it? I couldn't find it when I was looking for it. You know, no. I'm Isis the Aquarian was the archivist. I think she's pretty tight with it. It's not like Jim Jones, like you can find it online. Yeah. Um, It's in the dock, but I haven't seen it anywhere else. After the accident, the family all gathers around Father Yod and asks what they should do. Like, what should we do? What should we do? And he's yelling, transmute my pain. (laughs) 
and the majority of the members were barely old enough to drink, and they're like, well, okay, we're going to start chanting, transmute the pain, transmute the pain. Now, transmute means change. Oh so, um, so he had no real sort of outward injuries, but he was unable to move, and they carried him back to his home in Hawaii, and during that time, the members debated bringing him to the hospital, but then the other members are pointing out, no, we don't, he doesn't believe in hospitals. So they sort of sit vigil at him for nine days. He lived for nine days. He, he must have been in such in pain. excruciating pain. And then he dies. Oh, man. After Father Yo dies, the family attempted to, to stay together for what many describe as two very difficult years. But without Yod's guidance as an anchor or the restaurant as a cash cow, the family split and hit the fields and streets of Hawaii in 1977. There's like nothing left after he was gone. Nope. So as Jim mentioned earlier, many lived without means. So some went on welfare. Some started selling drugs. It was kind of a mess. And many of the members were aimless after having been on their Father Yod's spell for so many years so it was brutal coming back to a system that they left behind and i can't imagine being in this cult and coming out on the other side and jim did so let's hear what he has to say about that and it was just a perfect moment in history for it to happen and it was happening really all over the place this is not a unique story it's just fortunate that it didn't go into the full-on jonestown Mm -hmm. I don't think the darkness had much to do with the people that were there. And I don't even know that it was intentionally done by him. I just think what happened is he gained more power and began to take himself even more and more seriously until he declared himself as God. I think he was trying for redemption of his earlier life. And I thought maybe, well, I could learn a lot from from this man, etc. And then uh, I I was really quite disappointed. But at the beginning, it was just fun. (laughs) I was up for fun. How many of our stories start in the beginning? It was just really fun. A lot of fun in the beginning. They all do. Most, I mean... Most things that you intentionally do in life, you're doing them because they're fun. Yeah, no. The Sometimes it turns out the worst to be cool, you know? Yeah. But this guy survived. He thrived. Yeah. I mean, he's had all these wives and all these kids. No, I'm talking about Jim. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true, Jim. What's I going to pass it? He's a Harvard-educated Harvard psychologist. Yeah, who's his parents own paid jewelers. He has a lovely daughter named He never Hannah, judo-chopped judo anybody. Never judo-chopped anybody. No. I mean, Jim really, like, got out. Jim on top. No, yeah. and Jim also, for the most part, got out before shit started getting weird. He yes. did. He said so that a he few didn't times. have a bad experience that some people like Laura did. Right. And he was a great guest. He was such a we good love guy. You, Jim. So this first degree connection kind of came to us sort of roundabout, but it came from a fan. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. So if you guys have a connection to a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com or write our submissions form, the first degree podcast.com dm any of us on instagram at alexis Linkletter, at billy jensen at jack vanek or at the first degree and please rate and review our podcast on itunes give us some nice reviews and uh keep your friends close but not that close bye happy national god day it was national play god day. <laughs> national play god happy day national god day happy national balloon <laughs> extension day happy national apricot day over and out